Okay, so hi everybody. Um, so thanks very much uh, for the introduction and thanks to the organizers for inviting me to this extremely exciting event. Uh, we just heard how the first speaker is a brilliant scholar of Ge'ez and Ethiopian literature. And I can promise you that no one will be saying that about me after my talk, because uh, it's really not my specialism uh, at all. In fact, I, don't, I can't read Ge'ez. And in fact, I was thinking um, when I was invited to give this talk and contribute to the volume, of something my father does, which is that when you ask him a question and he doesn't know the answer, he says, I don't know, but I do know this other thing. And then he just tells you the sort of nearest thing that's in his head to what you asked, right? And it doesn't matter how far it is away, you still get to learn something. So that's what's going to happen now. I hope that uh, this will be relevant in the end. And as you're gonna see, I'm gonna take um, like a very long run up to Zera Yaakov, we'll get to him eventually. <laughs> um, but what I'm gonna do is start by raising some very big questions about the history of philosophy itself and narrow in on a sort of area of, uh, or division within the history of philosophy that I propose might be a good way of conceptualizing the place of Ethiopia in the history of philosophy. So first, Let's think about a general problem that actually um, faces all historians of philosophy, although they may ignore it by just following what has always been done. But this is something I've thought about a lot because of this podcast project, um, the history of philosophy without any gaps that was just mentioned. So how do we divide up the history of philosophy? One common way to do it is into time periods, like, for example, ancient, medieval, Renaissance, early modern, right? This is maybe the most boring and familiar way to do it. Even there, we have problems. So some people prominently, maybe most prominently, even John Marenbaum have talked about the difficulty of deciding where medieval begins and ends. So John has talked about the so-called long medieval period, um, which basically goes from what some people would call late antiquity to what some people will call early modern and swallows them up and sort of turns it all medieval. Um, you could also think about schools. So for example, empiricism and rationalism, uh, and those could of course cut right across chronological periods or cultural divisions. You could of course also think about cultures. Uh, so think about, for example, a phrase that I use a lot, philosophy in the Islamic world, uh, or think about Byzantine philosophy. These are um, two things that are gonna be relevant to what I'll be saying, or German philosophy, right? So these are defining uh, or, or dividing philosophy by cultures, maybe by languages. And that's, um, I think, a, a legitimate thing to do as well. In fact, all three of those things are legitimate. Um, and you could imagine other examples. So for example, philosophy done by women, right? Now, um, I think debates about this sort of issue often fall prey to a tacit assumption, which as soon as it's articulated, you see is obviously wrong namely that there's just one best way to do this, right? So you can argue about the merits of, for example, a long versus narrow Middle Ages, right? But it's, it's not like, you know, Charlemagne sent out a letter to everyone in Central Europe and said, news, the medieval period is beginning, please act accordingly, right? So there's no fact of the matter about um, where philosophy is divided. Rather, there's more and less useful ways of doing it. And I think it's important to be open to the idea that we might 
want to use multiple divisions in our own work, right? So for example, I both use chronological and cultural dividing terminology. And I also, um, you know, like written papers that are about the idea of women in the history of philosophy or women in the history of ancient philosophy, sort of two overlapping divisions. So what I want, what I'm going to propose now is not intended to replace anything. So if you're like a fan of say late ancient or medieval or Byzantine philosophy, then you shouldn't think that I'm kind of coming for you and trying to uh, put you on the dustbin of history. This is uh, supposed to be a supplementary way of thinking about a way of dividing the history of philosophy. And I would tentatively call it Eastern Christian philosophy, although I'm open to other ways of describing that. I mean, Eastern obviously has the potential problem that it's, it sounds like we're describing it as being East of us. And then there's this problem of who are we, right? Um, but really all I mean by Eastern is not Western and Western means the Latin speaking West, right? So obviously that's problematic in various ways, but it might be a pragmatically useful um, designation. And chronologically, um, I am thinking here of something like maybe from the sixth century CE, so the kind of tail end of late antiquity up until, well, it's not clear, but for the purposes of this event, let's say up to and including Zeta Yaakov, or actually, I guess we should say up to and including Waza Hewaz, right? Now, whether it would be useful to keep going beyond that is a, an interesting question as well, but at least that far. So notice that this actually corresponds very well to the so-called long middle ages chronologically. However, the long middle ages, is thought of as um, centrally including, although not necessarily exclusively including Latin scholastic philosophy. And this is meant to exclude that. So what I'm thinking here, uh, thinking about here, and this, by the way, you'll immediately see this is relevant to some of the things Ralph said, for example, the, the kind of parallel between Syriac and or Syrian and Ethiopian cultures. The, now we usually think these as theological cultures, but what I'm saying is that if you think about the various so-called Eastern Christian communities, it's useful to group the philosophy that happened in those cultures under this umbrella concept, Eastern Christian philosophy. I think this is something that is, has been tacitly suggested in work on, for example, philosophy from Syria, but I don't know of anyone who's ever suggested articulating this in as explicit and as capacious a way as I'm about to do, which means it's probably wrong <laughs> because it's pretty rare that someone suggests something that's genuinely new and genuinely correct. But it will be interesting to find out why it's not right, I think, hopefully at a minimum. Okay, now, if this is a good idea, then it would be a good idea because these philosophy and these cultures has something in common, right? So there should be some something, as I said before, there are various ways of dividing up the history of philosophy. So this way will only be a worthwhile way to divide up the history of philosophy if it turns out to be illuminating in some fashion. And what I'm going to suggest is illuminating about it is that there are some uh, striking common features that run through these cultures. Of course, they're not going to necessarily be exclusive to these cultures. So for example, my first, my first case will be the prevalence of philosophical translations. And obviously there were translations into Latin as well, right? So not every um, commonality is going to mark off Eastern Christian philosophy from Western Christian philosophy or anything else. 
but they are, I'm hoping that together the three factors I'm going to mention, maybe especially the third one, um, kind of come together to form a set of features that these cultures share and then makes us see that they kind of resonate with each other and then it would be useful to think about, think further about how they interrelate. Okay, so my first um, commonality is in fact the prevalence of translations. So if you think about the various um, languages I've mentioned before, so, or back on this slide, right? So um, we have Syriac, which I already mentioned, Georgian, Armenian, um, Arabic, Coptic,ese and maybe one could go on. Um, these are all translation, these are all languages into which philosophy was translated. Um, and here, the obvious thing to mention in this context is Claude Somner's Ethiopian philosophy, his five volume study of Ethiopian philosophy. A very striking feature of that is that the texts he's looking at other than Zara Yaakov and Walde Hewat are translations, right? And um, some of them are, so a couple of the texts, the Physiologus and the Tale of Secundus are works that were very popular choices for translation into a variety of languages. I'll come back to that. Um, back in 1920, before people learned that they shouldn't say annoying things like this, J.M. Harden said it's a defect of Ethiopian literature that it is for the most part a literature of translations. So, so the idea that um, there are a lot of translations or that there's a dominance of translations in Ethiopian philosophical literature, supposedly, um, is supposed to, I guess, raise the fear that it might be considered somehow derivative or unoriginal or something. But um, as Ralph will have just learned, there's nothing more intellectually challenging than translating a work of philosophy into another language, right? So actually, I, I and as someone who has done my fair share of translating philosophy into English, I would say that, um, this is a very impressive feature of philosophy in Eastern Christian cultures, right? They, I mean, anyone can sit down and write, and write a work of philosophy, translating a work of philosophy, that's hard. So um, it's of course not only true of the Ge'ez tradition, it's also true of all of the cultures I mentioned. Um, and some, some, in some cases in a way that pretty much only known to specialists. So for example, before, maybe I should have waited to show this slide and asked whether anyone can name me a philosophical translation into Armenian, uh, but there are some. So um, in particular, around the time I've been coming out of the Alexandrian school of uh, commentaries and translations on Aristotle, we then have works in Armenian on Aristotle's logic. So you might think, compare this to like what Boethius was doing in, into Latin, including uh, by the wonderfully named David the Invincible. Um, so there are translations into Armenia of both Aristotle and Plato. There are even translations of commentaries on Aristotle into Armenian. Um, in Georgian, there are also uh, works of philosophy uh, that are based on Greek. So here the, the main uh, name that is I guess the most famous, although not as famous as he should be, is Ioanna Petritsi, quite a bit later than David the Invisible, who translated Proclus into uh, Georgian. And this is a very interesting, and also commented on it, in fact. This is a very interesting case because he's, uh, tr he's not translating logic 
which is relatively unproblematic from a theological point of view. He's translating the work of a very explicitly pagan philosopher who was known to Ivana Patrici to be a pagan. And so Patrici is sort of justifying why he's doing this while he's commenting on him. Um, the, maybe the more well-known cases are then Syriac and Arabic. So um, there, there's a well-known kind of narrative according to which the flame of philosophy is sort of handed over from the Greeks to the so-called Arabs, by which they, people mean people who write in Arabic. They're often not Arabs. Um, sometimes they are. That leaves out Syriac, right? So Syriac is a sort of bridge language between the Greek and the Arabic traditions. And uh, many of the people, probably most of the people who were responsible for translating Greek into Arabic were also familiar with Syriac. So an uh, important person here would be someone like Hunan ibn Ishaq and his son, the confusingly named Ishaq ibn Hunayn, uh, who translated Galen and Aristotle, respectively, into Arabic. So when people like Ibn Sina, more famously known as Avicenna, or Ibn Rushd of Arawiz were reading Aristotle, they're reading the translations of Ishaq ibn Hunayn. And um, Hunayn actually translates into Syriac. Right, so um, you have within a, a school of translators, uh, you might start with a Greek manuscript, translate it into Syriac, and then translate that into Arabic for patrons, for Muslim patrons. There's another group of philosophers and translators who I've worked on a lot called the Kindi Circle, uh, because they were led by this philosopher Al-Kindi in the ninth century CE, who translated, again, Aristotle, but also Plotinus and then Proclus into Arabic. In that case, it's possible that they were translating more often directly from Greek, but that's a controversial question. So for example, um, the Arabic version of Plotinus, which is what I wrote my first book about, may have been translated from Greek, or it may have been translated through a Syriac intermediary. Uh, and it's di disputed among experts which of those is the case. A couple of generations after the Kindi circle and the Hunayn circle, you have the Baghdad school, who are making use of translations by Ishaq, but also add further translations of their own. Interestingly, they're often translating now from Syriac. So you have this kind of a translation of a translation, meta-translations, which is something you also see in the Ethiopian tradition, right? So you have um, cases where uh, work with Greek sources, at least, is translated into Arabic, and then the Arabic is translated into Gates. Um, a kind of parenthetical remark here, although I think this is an important and often overlooked fact, is that in the Islamic world, until pretty late, or pretty well into pretty far into the so-called medieval period, and I, I think I would say until the 11th century CE, philosophy was actually seen as somehow distinctively Christian. So a really good example of this is a famous debate between Abu Bishr Mata the putative founder of the Baghdad school that I just mentioned. Uh, so we have a report, which is very unfavorable to Abu Bishr, between him and a grammarian. And the grammarian is saying, we don't need all this Greek logic and philosophy, but especially logic, because we have Arabic grammar and the standards for speaking correctly and saying true things in Arabic is Arabic grammar, not this kind of pedantic and uh, sort of show-offy Greek stuff, 
right? So this is something that you would only, so it's like very polemical, right? This attack on, um, on logic taken from the Greeks. And it's clear that this grammarian, Sadafi, who's criticizing Abu Bisha, thinks of logic as something Christians do. So for example, he says things like, well, your logic hasn't stopped you from saying that the same thing can be both one and three, right? And that seems like a pretty bad mistake. So make, mocking the Trinity, for example. Um, so I think that that actually persists in the Arabic speaking milieu, probably up until Ibn Sina. So it's Ibn Sina who comes along and puts his stamp on this word falsafa and turns philosophy into something that is distinctively Muslim in a sense. And as soon as he does that, Muslim theologians start reacting to it in a much more hostile and also engaged way. There's a, there's a very complicated story about that. But my point is that um, we often think of philosophy in the Islamic world as something that's really all about Muslims. But actually until sort of three centuries into the story, it's mostly about Christians actually, or maybe not mostly, but it's, there's a sense in which it has a lot to do with Christianity. Um, something else that's, I think, that cuts across a lot of these traditions, and is certainly very important in the Syriac or Syrian tradition, is uh, that philosophy is often being done in a monastic context. So it's not true of Hunayn, he's not, he's not a monk, but uh, especially early on, a lot of the Syriac philosophy is done at monasteries. Um, so uh, George of the Arabs uh, is a good example of a Syrian uh, translator who is a monk, and uh, some or at least argues that the Physiologus was translated into Guise by a monk. Um, so that's, that's a general feature, I think, that um, doesn't turn up necessarily in all of these cultures, but in quite a few of them. And that will uh, relate to another theme I'll be talking about soon, which is asceticism. But first, I just wanted to say something about um, Byzantium. So of course, you might think like Byzantium, by which I basically mean scholarship at Constantinople, you might think, well, that doesn't fit into this part of the story, because obviously you don't have to translate Greek into another language if you're already using Greek. And although that's true, um, for one thing, we shouldn't forget that translation and transmission by a I mean, as we just heard, like manuscripts don't last forever, right? So the idea of translating and the idea of writing it out again, are maybe not as different as we think they are, right? Because for us, those are completely different. Whereas, and of course they are completely different, but they're both kinds of transmission. And the Byzantines um, are to be thanked for the fact that we have any Greek philosophy to read uh, because almost nothing survives from, uh, from antiquity except in the form of Greek manuscripts that actually are a lot farther apart from Plato and Aristotle than a thousand years. They're what, like one and a half thousand years. Um, but also, so it's, but it's not just that they transmit Greek manuscripts, they also translate other languages into Greek, including from Arabic and um, including from Latin. So there's a really interesting thing that happens in the late Byzantine period where they're translating scholastic philosophy like Thomas Aquinas into Greek and then arguing about it. Um, also, we've already talked about commentaries on Aristotle, especially, um, which we find in, say, Armenian. And the Byzantines are also perpetuating the late ancient project of commenting on Aristotle. And here, um, it's 
I think that probably the most impressive case would be the circle of commentators gathered around Anna Komnina, who's famous as a historian. She wrote the Alexiad, a, a sort of epic history about her father, Alexios Komnenos. But she also gathered together this group of scholars and got them to comment on works of Aristotle that had not been commented on in late antiquity, like, for example, his zoological works. So it's a kind of completist, let's make sure that all the works of Aristotle have commentaries kind of project. So, um, so this is not, as I say, it's not about translations exactly, but I think it's an expression of the same kind of antiquarian project of perpetuating and also building on the intellectual heritage that comes from antiquity. Okay, now um, when I come to another commonality that uh, goes through a lot of these traditions, which is something that's sometimes called popular philosophy. Now, even in what I just said, you might have noticed that there was something that, that was common for a lot of the cultures I talked about. So Syriac uh, works, works in Arabic, works in Armenian, um, and it's true of Latin as well, that a lot of them were uh, really invested in Aristotelian logic. So you have many translations of Aristotle's Organon, his logical corpus, and also commentaries on the Organon, which as far as I know is not true of Ethiopian philosophy. Um, rather, the texts that you find collected by Sumner, uh, apart obviously from Zerayakov and Waldehewat, are texts that are would sometimes be called popular philosophy, or maybe a less pejorative expression would be wisdom literature. So we have narratives, we have collections of sayings, we have, or what's sometimes called uh, nomological uh, collections, we have metaphors like in the Physiologus. So it's, I mean, and the reason people call this popular philosophy is it's a kind of snide expression, right? So the philosophy for people who aren't really philosophers and just want to sort of quote some philosophy at a dinner party. That would be like the most pejorative way of thinking about it. And I think, and I, I think that's probably what people who talk about popular philosophy mean. Um, but the reason I'm using, I'm not just banning the expression from my talk is that there's something right about it, which is that popular philosophy was popular, unlike commentaries on Aristotle, right? So, I mean, if you're a normal person, you don't want to go read a commentary on De Interpretatis. I'm sorry, I'm implying that John's not a normal person, but let's face it, if you're a normal person, you don't want to go read a commentary on De Interpretatione. You want to read the Physiologus, it's really cool, it's really memorable, or the Tale of Secundus, that's memorable, right? I'll get to that later. Um, or actually, no, I'll get to it now. So uh, uh, probably almost everyone here, there's a very unusual crowd where almost everybody knows about the Tale of Secundus, right? So the story is that this person wants to test the claim that women are all of poor moral standards and goes home after many years and seduces his own mother, right? And comedy ensues, no, and, and bad things ensue, right? So the mother kills herself, he takes a vow of silence, he meets a king who then gets, uh, gets Secundus to share wisdom in writing um, and says, you know, will you write down your wisdom for me? And Secundus says, sure. No, Secundus says, and writes down the wisdom. Uh, so this was a very popular text. It was translated into many, many languages, which I list here on the slide. So um, it was translated, it was originally in Greek. It was translated into Syriac, Armenian, or Arabic, Latin, Old French, and Gaze. The Latin version was then further translated into all the, in, not all, but many of the European vernaculars, including Icelandic, 
So this is an amazingly popular text. This beats any logical work by Aristotle. I don't know of a logical work by Aristotle that, would, that existed in this many uh, languages. And um, I think that's really important. So I think it's important and this is something that professional philosophers really forget. We forget that when people, when the populations in these medieval cultures thought about what philosophy was, probably the first thing that came to mind was something like a collection of wisdom sayings or a work like the Tale of Secundus and not Aristotle, at least they might know the name of Aristotle, but they might even think, oh, Aristotle, he's the one that said, you know, assemble wisdom and not gold, right? Or something like that. Because of course, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates are often the mouthpieces for, the, for these wise sayings. Um, by the way, uh, the, uh, something I alluded to before is another um, feature of, that, of translations that is especially true of popular philosophy. So popular philosophy is often translated into one language and then translated into another language. And of course, it often changes in the process. Even when it's not being translated, it's often rearranged. So you can easily like take a collection of sayings and make a smaller collection of sayings out of it, or take more than one collection of sayings, put them together, put, put together your favorites, right? Build your own nomological connection collection. Um, now, going back to the sort of um, the sense in which people use the word popular philosophy pejoratively, um, the thought behind that is presumably, well, this is philosophy for normal people because it's not very intellectually demanding, right? Like you don't need to know a lot or you don't need a lot of training or maybe you just don't need to even need to be very smart or something to understand and appreciate this stuff. But actually, I don't think that that attitude holds up when you read some of these texts. So um, for example, from the Tale of Secundus, from the second part where he's sharing his wisdom, he is asked to explain what is the human, what is anthropos. And he gives this sort of concatenation of descriptions, fleshly mind, spirited vessel, sensing receptacle, toiling soul, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is uh, obviously the, the Greek version I'm quoting from here. Now, first of all, notice that this, the setup of the question is exactly what you would find in a platonic dialogue. So TSDX, what is X? That's, what, that's a, a question that you would um, find Socrates posing to an interlocutor. So this is the most standard way to frame a philosophical question in antiquity. And the answer is absolutely packed with technical terminology. So nous, uh, pneumatic, aesthetic to mean, uh, mean sensitive, right? Um, phantasma. So these are all technical terms from Greek. And you don't, maybe you won't recognize the technical terms, but maybe you will. And if you do, you'll understand the passage much better, right? So I think it's, it's just not true that so-called popular philosophy is sort of low power in terms of its intellectual content. But even more so, it's not undemanding in another sense because it's very demanding ethically. It demands a lot of us as readers, not because it's hard to read. In fact, it's usually easy to read and it's also memorable, which is very important. In, in, in fact, the whole point may be that it's easy to remember because you can recite it, right? Sort of wisdom sayings or things you can say to yourself, right? Like when I'm, for example, if I'm um, tempted to do something greedy, I can think, oh, Aristotle said, 
acquire wisdom, not golds, right? And it reminds me to behave well, right? Um, but it's more than just don't be greedy. A lot of this literature pushes you towards truly heroic standards of behavior. And here we come back to monasticism, right? So the, the idea sort of put forward as a moral ideal in a lot of this popular literature is the sort of thing we associate with late ancient desert fathers and mothers, right? So living out in a cave, a cave, you can probably figure out where I'm going with this eventually. So going out into the wilderness, living apart from other people, um, becoming this kind of superhero of asceticism. And a, a little appreciated fact is that in these cultures in late antiquity, starting in late antiquity, but in many of these cultures, the word philosophy could be used to refer to that lifestyle. So what it means to call someone a philosopher is, oh yeah, they live in the wilderness and only survive on like one scrap of bread per week and spend all their time worshiping the divine. That's a philosopher. So just as the word philosophy for a lot of people at the time might have conjured the body of wisdom sayings and then, okay, they know there's some technical stuff by Aristotle or whoever as well. That's what philosophy is as a genre or as a body of writing. What philosophy is as a way of life is this. It's not sitting around talking about the meaning of the metaphysics with your friends. It's being a heroic sort of saintly figure of uh, committed to asceticism. We see this uh, in, for example, in, in also even in Greek with the word um, philosophos or philosophia, for example, in Michael Psalos' encomium to his mother, where he says that he is not, he himself was not able to live according to her philosophy, by which he means this radically ascetic, ascetic lifestyle. Um, now, again, the, and this is sort of parallel with what I said about uh, translations, the stories about ascetic, heroic, desert fathers, desert brothers, and so on, were disseminated in all the same languages I've been talking about. So they spread across all of these languages. Um, and uh, they include figures who are known in the Ethiopian tradition, including, of course, the silent philosopher, Secundus. Um, so he's uh, actually mentioned in, uh, Secundus is mentioned in a Syriac text from the seventh century uh, um, by Isaac of Nineveh, who refers to this philosopher who had so mastered the will of the body that he did not deviate from his vow of silence, even when he was threatened with a sword by the king, right? So that's Secundus. Um, in fact, Secundus is deeply ascetic. So um, it's against uh, wealth, or it, it sort of defines wealth as a really dangerous thing that can corrupt you. And uh, it's notorious treatment of women which of course is most memorably about, you know, his, his mother being willing to sleep with him, right? That's then reflected in the second part of the text where definitions of the definition of woman defines woman as a, like a, an evil viper and so on, right? Now we read that today as just straightforward misogyny, but the context for understanding it is that women are sort of like money. There are things that tempt people, men who are trying to live an ascetic lifestyle, right? So. Uh, a lot of this literature about men who go out into the wilderness, what they're trying to escape from is, of course, wealth, corruption, luxury, but also women and the temptations of women. And I'm not saying this is good, obviously, uh, but it's, I think it's to be understood within that intellectual context. Um, 
now a, a work that's uh, very interesting in this respect for later on in the Ethiopian tradition is uh, The Gate of Faith by Enbakom, who was a Muslim who went to Ethiopia and converted to Christianity. And this work is very ascetic and it's also full of wisdom literature, so-called popular philosophy. So he quotes great philosophers, right? Uh, like Plato and Socrates, who appears in a lot of the popular philosophy from all these various cultures. Um, so actually, this is something I've been thinking about for quite a while, well before I got interested in all of in like Zeta well before I even heard of Zeta Yaakov, in fact, because that philosopher I mentioned earlier, Akindi, uh, has a collection of sayings by Socrates that have been somehow filtered through from the Greek tradition and then translated into uh, Arabic. There's an interesting story here about Socrates in Arabic being confused or conflated with Diogenes the Cynic. So there's stories about like Socrates was once sunning himself on his wine barrel and then the, a great king came along and said, what can I do for you, Socrates? And Socrates says, stop blocking my son, which is a famous story about Diogenes the Cynic, but here is ascribed to Socrates. Um, and I was really amazed to see this. So this, so the, the bottom text is from Enbakom, the top text is from Alkindi, and maybe I won't read them out because I'm running out of time, but they're incredibly similar. So it's, uh, in both cases, we have a, a hierarchy of causes, which basically um, goes back to Neoplatonic metaphysics. And, they're in, and the top text is ascribing this to Socrates and the bottom text is ascribing it to Plato. These are centuries apart like more than half a millennium apart, one in Arabic, one in Ge'ez, but, but showing how similar intellectual cultures were. Okay, and finally, and importantly, um, a, another thing that unites these cultures and sort of cuts across the linguistic divides is the use of philosophy to engage in religious debate. Now, actually, in what I've said so far, I haven't said that much about Christianity, Right. I mean, even what I was just saying about asceticism is, could be true for ascetic pagans in um, late antiquity and, could all, and was also true of uh, ascetics who were in non-Christian traditions. But I think there's uh, something that's here very important about Christianity in Eastern cultures. And this really, I think, does distinguish it to some extent from the Western tradition, which is that these are Christians who are often living in majority non-Christian cultures, or at least living in contact, close contact with other uh, religious, with proponents of other religions. So they're engaged in a lot of debate with these other faiths. And they're also engaged in debate within Christianity, right? And so between, for example, rival views of Christology. And uh, again, Embakom is a really good example of this because as a convert from Islam to Christianity, he's, attacking Islam with a lot of knowledge of the Islamic religion. So for example, he's able to quote from the Quran. It's reminiscent to me of, an, again, a text that was written much earlier, so sort of in early on in um, Islamic history, in Syriac by the patriarch Timothy, where Timothy talks about a debate between himself and the Caliph Mahdi, a very polite debate. Of course, you would be polite if you're debating with the Caliph, right? you got to be careful. Uh, and Timothy is, um, is referring to things in the Quran 
and Mahdi is referring to things in the gospels and they're using their knowledge of each other's faiths to refute each other. Uh, something that is often sort of assumed, I think has never been proven, but seems kind of sensible would be to assume that the reason why they're so interested in logic is that they can use logic as a kind of weapon in inter and intra-religious debate, right? So that may be one reason why they translated so many logical works. But I think just in general, um, the idea that philosophy could be used as a kind of rational tool for religious uh, apologetics, but also even explaining the doctrines of your own religion against rivals is something that you find in all of these cultures. Okay, so finally, just the last couple of minutes, why is this all relevant to the current, uh, to the current, to the, what we're doing here this weekend? Well, of course, I've already shown you and tried to show you in various ways that the Ethiopian philosophy before Zoda Jacob fits very neatly into um, everything I said about these other Christian cultures. And you can use that using the text mentioned, but you can show that using the texts um, that are discussed by Sumner, you can use it, um, use the input column to make the same point. But I think that Zera Yaakov makes a lot of sense in the context I just described in a variety of ways. So maybe the most obvious is that is the ascetic context of Zera Yaakov's own story, right? So he literally goes to a cave and has all of his illuminative insights there. He's basically like a desert father, right? Who's then turns into a philosopher. And you might say, well, the fact that he turns into a philosopher, though, as we just heard, right? So um, people, you know, you might worry, well, is that really, this is what you were saying, it's like, is it a secular text or a religious text? Um, we also have uh, the much maligned Rossini saying, well, this could never have been written at that time and place, right? It's way too, it's uh, not marked by the blind faith that you would expect from an Ethiopian at that time. But um, from what I was just saying, especially about interreligious debate, you can see that that's not just, it's not just unnecessary to make that assumption, it's completely false because one common feature of these Eastern Christian cultures was that they used reason to understand their own faith, to refute other members of their own faith, and above all, to refute members of other faiths. So the ecumenical context of Eastern Christianity gave them a very powerful reason to use reason to explain the meaning of their own religious doctrines and to defend them. And so actually, here, when you actually I was thinking Ralph, when you were talking about the kind of skeptical approach to religion, I think what looks to us like skepticism is in fact this. It's saying, well, if I'm going to be able to defend Christianity, I better be able to establish the truths of Christianity rationally, because if I can't, what am I going to do when the Copt comes? Or what am I going to do when the Muslim comes? And for this reason, and there'd be more, a lot more to say about this, it's actually, I think, um, a feature, not just of Islamic culture, but of all of these cultures that they used, they favored the use of reason over the use of blind obedience to authority, which in Arabic was called taklid. All intellectuals in Islamic culture, medieval Islamic culture, 
also early modern Islamic culture, and in Eastern Christian cultures, they looked down on people who could not use reason to expound their religion and defend it. That's hoi polloi. That's the popular folk. If you can't explain your religion and defend it rationally, you're not a scholar. So when Zira Yaakov says, I can explain and understand God using reason, he's not showing that he's a creature of the enlightenment. He's showing that he's a creature of Eastern Christian philosophy. Thank you very much. Thank you.